One of the things life teaches us is that nothing ever stands still. If you leave a house alone, before long you'll begin to see it falling into dilapidation and disrepair. Leave your muscles alone, and before long you'll see them wither and shrink. Leave a relationship alone, and before long you will see it fade. On the other hand, if you actively participate in a relationship, if you exercise your muscles and work at your house, there can be growth and development. Houses, muscles, and relationships are all in motion. They're either getting nicer, stronger, and deeper, or they're getting uglier, weaker, and shallower. And the Bible tells us it's the same when it comes to belief and unbelief. Specifically, belief and unbelief in Jesus. In our passage this morning, we're going to see belief and unbelief in motion. If you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 9. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1075, or in the larger print Bibles, 1665. John chapter 9. In a moment, we're going to read from chapter 9, verse 8, but this will make no sense at all unless we know what happened in verses 1 to 7. We read those verses last week. They told us about a healing Jesus performed. It was a miracle where Jesus took the initiative. He saw a man who had been blind from birth, and Jesus healed the man in an unusual way. Instead of just healing the man with a word, which Jesus could have done, instead of that, we're told Jesus spat on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. What a strange thing to do. But the man still couldn't see at that point. Before he could see, he had to respond to Jesus. Jesus told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash the mud out of his eyes. Before the man could see, he had to put his faith in Jesus' word and do what Jesus said. That's what the man did. At the end of verse 7, we were told he went and washed and he came home seeing. And last week we thought about the significance of that muddy miracle. It points to a great truth about Jesus. It's a sign that points beyond itself to the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. Just as the first man, Adam, was made out of mud... So this blind man was remade with mud. This miracle is a sign that Jesus came to do God's new creation work, overcoming our spiritual blindness. The healing of the man born blind points to the truth that Jesus gives spiritual sight to a world born spiritually blind. That's how chapter 9 started. And now this morning, we're going to hear what happened after that miraculous healing. And as we read verses 8 to 41, here are two things to be looking out for as we read. Look out for the growing darkness of unbelief. And look out for the growing brightness of belief. The growing darkness of unbelief and the growing brightness of belief. Pick up in verse 8. Speaking about the man born blind, now healed by Jesus. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud 
and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud in my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the man born blind What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. This is God's word. And as I said earlier, it shows us both the growing darkness of unbelief and the growing brightness of belief. First in verses 8 to 23. The growing darkness of unbelief in Jesus. Sometimes as Christians, we can begin to think that maybe we're a bit naive or a bit thick even. 
Why is it that so many people don't share our belief in Jesus? Is it because unbelievers are smarter than us? Do they have some special insight, some special information that we are missing? Do they have some special understanding that causes them not to believe in Jesus? We can all have moments when we think like that. But this passage shows us something different. It shows us rather than unbelief being based on some special insight, unbelief actually has to go to greater and greater lengths to avoid the truth about Jesus. At the beginning of chapter 9, an obvious miracle has taken place. An undeniable miracle that shows who Jesus is. What I mean is, it's undeniable for the people there on the scene. But what we find are irrational attempts to avoid the truth. Those attempts to avoid the truth start out being just silly, but they end up being sinister. We find the growing darkness of unbelief in Jesus. Verse 8 tells us the initial response is from the neighbors of this man who was born blind. Do any of you here this morning have a blind neighbor? No? Well, let me ask the question in a different way. If you had a blind neighbor who spent every day begging in the middle of Walsall, would you know about it? You would, wouldn't you? If you had a neighbor with that kind of obvious disability and that kind of public occupation, it would be pretty hard for you to be unaware of it. But look at the reaction of this man's neighbors again in verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. What's going on there? It's not that these people don't know the man. It's not that his healing isn't blatantly obvious. What's going on is that the reality of what's happened is too much for these people. They know this man, but rather than accept the obvious, that their neighbor was blind but now he can see, instead of accepting what has actually happened, they say, no, it must be a different man who looks exactly the same as the blind man who lives next door to us. The blind man who lived next door to us yesterday must have moved out this morning before we got up, and this identical twin who isn't blind must have moved in. That must be what happened. Their reaction doesn't make sense. It's silly. And it's all the more silly because the man himself is bouncing up and down in front of them saying, no, it really is me. I don't have a twin. The neighbor's reaction is silly. But it's the same kind of reaction many people have to Jesus in John's Gospel. They see obvious evidence that he's the Son of God, but the reality is too much for them. Their belief is not rational. They simply find unbelief easier than belief. Does that describe you? If you're an unbeliever, is it simply because you don't want to face the truth? Is your reaction to the New Testament the kind of silly reaction these neighbors have? Do you resort to saying, it's all just made up? The men and women who gave these eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, eyewitness accounts that many of them eventually died for, Every single one of them was just making it up. 
They didn't really see and hear these things. They died for a bunch of lies that they knew was a bunch of lies. Does that seem very likely to you? Isn't that about as likely as finding that your blind neighbor disappeared one day to be replaced by an identical neighbor who could see? Isn't it much more likely the first Christians carried their message around the world and in many cases died for the sake of their message because they really had witnessed the once in all of history arrival of the Son of God on earth. They really had witnessed his death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. They really had witnessed his resurrection to new life. Here in John chapter 9, the neighbor's silly reaction becomes impossible for them to maintain because the man himself is right there, as we noticed, saying, it really is me. And so the neighbors demand an explanation in verse 10. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and washed. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. The reason the man doesn't know where Jesus is is because he has not yet seen Jesus. When he left Jesus to go and wash in the pool, the man was still blind. So now, although he can see he could not pick out Jesus from a crowd. And what the neighbors do at this point is hand the situation over to the Pharisees. They look to their leaders to make sense of this. And what we find is the Pharisees won't face the facts either. But in their case, unbelief takes a darker turn. It goes from silly to sinister. Verse 14 drops in the detail that Jesus has healed the man on a Sabbath, the Jewish holy day. And for the Pharisees, that then becomes the only relevant point in all of this. As far as they're concerned, Jesus has broken the Sabbath. Are they right? Well, earlier in John's Gospel in chapter 5, Jesus performed another miraculous healing on the Sabbath. And we notice there that God's Old Testament law certainly did prohibit working on the Sabbath, meaning your normal work, your day job. Every seventh day, the people were to rest from that to focus on worshiping God. That prohibition is contained in the Ten Commandments. However, the Jewish leaders, over time, added their own Sabbath rules on top of the Old Testament law. They supplemented God's simple command with a whole manual of complicated requirements. And according to those additional traditions, healing was forbidden on the Sabbath, unless the illness was life-threatening. And the blind man's illness certainly wasn't life-threatening. He'd been that way for years. Kneading was also forbidden. That's K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G. The thing that you do when you make bread. That was considered work. And at a stretch, they could say Jesus engaged in kneading when he made mud to put on the blind man's eyes. And apparently anointing a person's eyes was forbidden also. So on three counts, Jesus has broken not God's law, but the traditions of the Jewish leaders. And that's all these leaders are willing to focus on. Instead of amazement that wants to learn about this wonderful miracle... What we get from the Jewish, Jewish leaders is unbelief at all costs. 
Verse 16 tells us, at this point, there are two viewpoints among the Pharisees. Some say, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Meaning, he doesn't keep our own man-made traditions about the Sabbath. Therefore, it doesn't matter what he does. It doesn't matter what evidence there is he might be from God. We don't care. Now, surely a more sensible approach would be to ask, is it possible our ideas about the Sabbath are wrong? Is it possible we need to revise our ideas in the face of what looks like a miracle from God? In fact, that's what at least some of the Pharisees are willing to consider. They say, in the same verse, how can a sinner perform such signs? Maybe we don't know as much as we thought we did. This man has been miraculously healed, so maybe we ought to be open to new information here. Some of the Pharisees are thinking that way. But in a few moments, we'll see the sinister reality that there is no room for that thinking among the Pharisees. That kind of openness to Jesus gets crushed. Because when they call the formerly blind man back a second time, a bit further down, when that happens, the Pharisees are united. In verse 24, they say with one voice, we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. So very quickly, the other point of view has been silenced. Either because those who voiced that view have been pushed out, or because they've fallen in line so they don't get pushed out. But at this point here in verse 17, the Pharisees turn to the formerly blind man and they ask for his view on Jesus. What do you have to say about it? And the man is positive. He says, Jesus is a prophet. But the Pharisees' reaction shows they weren't asking the man because they wanted to get at the truth. They were hoping he would agree with them about Jesus, that Jesus is a sinner. Their reaction in verse 18 shows that. When the man says Jesus is a prophet, they immediately decide not to believe the man had ever been blind even though they'd admitted that fact in verse 17. They said to him in verse 17, it was your eyes Jesus opened. But now, because the man hasn't told them what they wanted to hear, the Pharisees send for the man's parents, hoping they'll solve this whole issue by saying their son wasn't really born blind. Can you see how this is turning into an exercise, not in getting at the truth, but in getting the answer the Pharisees want? They can see there's been a miracle, but they just want an excuse to deny it. When the man's parents are brought to the Pharisees, they can sense the kind of atmosphere they've just landed in. They realize they've been called not to help the Pharisees find out the truth, but to give the Pharisees an excuse to dismiss the truth. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 sorry, uh, The parents say, We know he is our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. The parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. The parents are afraid. They know what kind of answer the Pharisees will find acceptable and what kind of answer will provoke the Pharisees' wrath. The parents know and they're not going to rock the boat. So they back off. And with great courage, they throw their son under the bus. Ask him, ask him. Saying he is of age means he's at least 13 years old. 
That's the age when someone could give legal testimony. Of course, he may be older than that, but the mention of him being of age and the fact that his parents are involved suggests the man may not be all that much older than a teenager. And before we hear from the man again, let's just consider what we've learned so far about the growing darkness of unbelief in Jesus. It started with the silliness of the man's neighbors who wanted to avoid admitting the truth that the man had been miraculously healed. But now things have become darker. Now people are being bullied into concealing the truth. The Pharisees are not interested in knowing the truth. They want to destroy Jesus, no matter if he is God come in the flesh. And the parents, who apparently do realize the truth, they're intimidated into keeping quiet about what they know. Unbelief is not quite what it claims to be. It is not the result of rigorous, unbiased, intellectually honest searching for the truth. Honest, open searching leads to the truth. Unbelief is the result of a refusal to face the truth because it's too life-changing. Men and women persist in unbelief because the truth would change their thinking or change their circumstances. And they don't want that. The neighbors of the blind man don't want to admit there might be supernatural power at work in their world. The Pharisees don't want to accept that their authoritative rules and traditions might need to break in the face of Jesus' greater authority. And the blind man's parents don't want to lose their place as respected members of their community. The synagogue was the local meeting place of the Jews. It was the center of their community. And this father and mother are willing to smother the truth in order to keep their place in the synagogue. I once heard a scientist being interviewed on the BBC. And the interviewer was asking the scientist about the origins of the universe. And the scientist began his response by saying, well, when it comes to the origins of the universe, many of my colleagues would answer that question by saying the evidence points to a creator, a divine mind behind the universe. And at that point, the BBC interviewer cut the scientist off. He said, oh, that's just quackery. We're not going to talk about that. So much for open inquiry. So much for the search for truth. That interviewer had an answer he wanted to hear. And as soon as the invited expert began to sound like he was going to suggest a different answer, he was silenced, rudely. Do you think there might be other top-level scientists who doubt the popular ideas about the origins of the universe? The idea that it's just the result of random evolutionary processes? Do you think there might be scientists who doubt the gospel of evolution, but who keep quiet because they're afraid of losing their funding or even their career? Let's not be naive enough to think the world of science and the world of academia are just dealing with the facts. There's plenty of silliness and there's plenty of intimidation in play to avoid facing up to the truth. Not just the truth about the origins of the universe, 
but also the truth about Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer, don't be naive enough to think unbelievers have some special insight that leads them to unbelief. Unbelief is about refusing to go where the evidence leads. And if you're not a believer, don't be so confident about the unbelieving experts whose word you are basing your life on. Their word might not be motivated by the pure and noble ideals you think it is. Well, here in John chapter 9, we've heard from the neighbors, we've heard from the Pharisees, and we've heard from the parents. But the hero of our story is the man born blind. A beggar who probably has no more than a basic education and may not have reached the age of 20. Why is he our hero? Simply because he, alone among all these others, is willing to face reality. He's willing to deal with the evidence about Jesus. When we follow the progress of the man born blind, we see the growing brightness of belief in Jesus. Look at verse 24. As we saw a moment ago, out of fear for the repercussions, the man's parents have refused to tell the truth. They pass the buck to their son, and in verse 24 we read, A second time they, that's the Pharisees, summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man, that's Jesus, is a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does as well. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Remember, this man has not yet seen Jesus with his eyes. While he was still blind, he heard Jesus' voice telling him to go and wash in the pool. All this man knows is that when he responded to Jesus' word, his eyes were opened. And despite all the silliness and the intimidation he is subjected to by his neighbors and the Pharisees and even his parents, despite all that, this man persists in honestly facing the fact of what has happened. The reality that Jesus must be someone special. At first, he's not really sure how special. In verse 17, he said, I reckon Jesus is a prophet. That's a fairly low-key idea about Jesus. In verse 25, he even says, I don't know whether or not Jesus is a sinner. So the man is tentative at first. But as the unbelievers around him put more and more pressure on him, the man's conviction actually grows. It begins to dawn on him that these so-called experts who are against Jesus aren't really experts at all. They're not really interested in getting to the bottom of what happened. And so in verse 27, he says, I told you what happened already, but you didn't listen. Why are you asking me again? He starts making fun of them. Do you want to become his disciples too? 
Of course, he knows they don't. But the more this man realizes the Pharisees don't want to know the truth, the less intimidated he is by their unbelief. Until when they go apoplectic and resort to hurling insults at him, incredibly, he, the uneducated beggar, calls them out on their theological understanding. In verse 31, God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does, does his will. So, Jesus can't be a sinner, can he? Maybe this man's not quite ready to teach a Bible course. But as he follows the facts of the situation, as he considers the implications of those facts, already he's made amazing progress in his understanding of Jesus' character. Jesus is a godly person who does God's will. Because he is open to the truth, this simple man can get that far in his grasp of the truth, while the people around him go deeper into darkness. And it's significant that the man's faith is developing under pressure. The opposition he's face, facing is actually causing his faith to develop and grow stronger. The more he speaks to the Pharisees, the bolder he gets. Back in chapter 8, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's what this man is experiencing. He began by holding to the simple word of Jesus to go and wash the mud from his eyes. And as he persists in holding to the truth that Jesus can open blind eyes, as the man persists with that truth in the face of pressure, he's coming to know more of the truth. He's increasingly being set free from his fear of other people and what they might say and do to him. And as you and I watch this man, let's learn from him ourselves. Let's not say, I'll wait until I have stronger faith before I speak up for Jesus. I'll wait until I understand more before I stand up for Jesus. Or before I take this hard decision to be faithful to Jesus. No, stand up for him and speak up for him now. Take the hard decision to be faithful to him now. And as you do, your faith and understanding will grow through the experience. Faith does not grow by holding back. It grows by acting on the truth we know about Jesus, trusting that truth. And as we put our weight on that truth, our faith and understanding deepen. We're shown more of that in what happens next to this man. When he dares to give the Pharisees a wee theology lesson in verses 30 to 33, they abandon all pretense of being impartial seekers of the truth. They dismiss the man as a sinner who has no right to teach them anything. And they boot him out of the synagogue. In this community, that was probably about as low as you could go. This man started in a low position as a beggar. But if he had gone along to get along, if he'd said what the Pharisees wanted to hear from him, he could have risen in the community. Now that his eyes work, he could have taken his place at a higher level in his society. But the man is willing to sacrifice that in order to hold on to what he knows about Jesus. And look at the blessing that leads to in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. 
Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus has been absent from the story since verse 7, when he told the man to go and wash his eyes. And now, at the very point where the man's community have rejected him, Jesus steps forward and shows his grace and love. This is the first time the man has seen Jesus with his eyes. And it's also the moment where he sees fully who Jesus is. Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus has used this title previously in John's Gospel. It traces back to Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. There in a vision, Daniel sees a man with God's authority come to carry out God's purposes for the world, for history. So the title Son of Man shows the huge worldwide scope of Jesus' mission and his power. And no doubt that's why Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man. He's revealing himself to this man as more than just a miracle worker, more than just a prophet, more than just a godly person who does God's will. Yes, Jesus is all of those things. The man wasn't wrong. But to know Jesus in all of his glory, we have to see him as the all-powerful Lord of history. And here Jesus comes to the man who has persisted in the truth he knew. And Jesus reveals the full brightness of the truth about himself. The man falls at Jesus' feet in worship. He's overwhelmed by the Lord in front of him. So if you feel that your faith is weak and inadequate, if you feel that you understand so little of the truth, keep going. Don't be intimidated by the unbelief around you. Live in the light of what you know about Jesus and as you do, he will show more of himself to you. What we mustn't do is close ourselves off to the truth about Jesus. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says in verse 39, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Jesus came to give sight to the spiritually blind. Jesus' arrival is good news. But, as he explains in the final couple of verses, his arrival is bad news for those who insist that they can see just fine, thanks. People like the Pharisees who are confident they already see everything clearly and perfectly. For people like that, their blindness will just get deeper. In order to receive spiritual sight, we have to humble ourselves and admit we're blind. If, like the Pharisees, we claim we already see all there is to see, and so we rule out the truth about Jesus, then we're just going deeper into guilt and condemnation. Belief and unbelief do not stand still. They're always in motion, leading to growing brightness or growing darkness, leading to heaven or to hell. So let's not pull back from Jesus. Let's humble ourselves before him. Let's take him at his word. And let's press farther up and farther in to his light. Let's ask him to help us do that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we feel the pressure 
of unbelief all around us. Every day, we feel the intimidation to turn our backs on the truth and to say what's expected of us, often what is demanded of us. We feel the pressure to fall in line with this unbelieving world. So we pray, in your love and mercy, will you lead us on to see your truth more clearly, to see more of Jesus, more of his beauty and his sufficiency and his love. Lead us on like you led this blind man on. We ask this in the strong saving name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing about the amazing grace we have received in Jesus and the immortal honors Jesus deserves.